Hi everyone, I'm Nicolette. Welcome to Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. We're so glad to have you as part of our church community. Today, Pastor Brian Broderson continues in our series through the book of John, chapter 4, 43 through 54, with a message entitled, The Second Sign. Like we'll see in this story, where and when God works is not determined by us. God works where and when He sees fit despite our lack of faith, and in a word, He can work powerfully. In this story, a soldier puts his faith in Jesus. Although his faith is weak, he is rewarded. It's a beautiful reminder for us today that with a word, Jesus will meet us where we are, and we can stand on the promise of His word. If you'd like to watch more messages from this series in John, visit the teaching page of cccm.com. So as we have mentioned, John, the writer, uh, John wrote his gospel last. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, their gospels had already been written. And their accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus are, at least upon initial readings, they are similar. And they, they are similar. They cover a lot of the same ground. The more you read them, you realize that, oh, they're different than they initially appear to be. But, but in a sense, they, they follow Jesus through pretty much the same things. They're called the synoptics, meaning seen from a similar point of view. So John, he writes... And his gospel is so much different. It is unique um, in that he doesn't really follow the, the pattern that Matthew, Mark, and Luke followed. But John decides that he's going to give a bit of a different presentation. And so John centers his gospel around seven signs and seven sayings. And so everything in John's gospel revolves around these signs and these sayings. And when we look at the gospel of John, we see that there are very unique features to it. But John tells us why he did that. He did it with this objective. He wrote so that people would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, they might have life in his name. So that, that was his reason. So John says, I want to I write out the life of Jesus, and I want to write it in a way that's going to um, it's gonna bring people to the conclusion that Jesus really is the Messiah, that he really is God the Son and that they can believe and have life in his name. So, so that, that's what he does here in this gospel. Now, in the text that we just read, we read right at the very end, it says, this was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. So this is the, the second sign. So as I said, John is gonna write this gospel around these signs. And he uses the word sign rather than the word miracle, even though most of the signs are miracles. But John uses the word sign for a reason, because he, he's using these things 
And he wants us to see that these things point to, they, they point to what he is wanting us to conclude, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so we could think when he uses the word sign, just think signpost. So these are signposts, just as a signpost points you in a direction, tells you what's up ahead. That's what John is doing as he is writing his gospel and as he is focusing in on these signs. Now, the first sign, which occurred in the second chapter, uh, the turning of water into wine, it pointed to Jesus indeed being the creator. That was, that was the sign behind uh, what Jesus did. Now, John in the prologue, the prologue being the beginning of his gospel, maybe you remember he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then he says, and all things were made by him. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. And then he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the turning of the water into wine was a manifestation of what John had already said, that Jesus is the creator. Turning the water into wine was a creative event. And that's what that first sign was pointing to, that Jesus is the one who created all things. John wants his readers to understand that. Now, here in the second sign, he is wanting us to see something else. And we'll get to that something else that he wants us to see in just a moment. But before we do that, there are two slightly perplexing things that John says in the first part of the verses that we read that I want us to just look at for a moment. So let me go back and read here. Uh, verse 43 says, after two days, he left for Galilee. Now, Jesus, you remember, he had been in Samaria. He was in Judea and he needed, it says, he, he was heading back to Galilee, but it says he needed to go through Samaria. Why did he need to go through Samaria? Because there was that woman that needed to hear the gospel, that woman at the well. And you remember that story, you heard it a few weeks ago. And then as a result of, of Jesus revealing to her that he is the Messiah, she goes and tells uh, the people in her village and Jesus stays with them for two days and preaches the gospel to him. And at the end they say, to her they say, now we don't believe in him because of what you said only, we believe in him because we heard him ourselves and we know that he is the savior of the world. So now, after those two days, um, Jesus now continues the journey to Galilee. But now John says this in verse 44, he says, now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they had also been there. So this is where it gets a little perplexing. So John reminds us of something that Jesus said. Okay, Jesus is going back to Galilee. He had said a prophet is, is um, not without honor except in his own country. 
And then it says, and Jesus went there and the Galileans welcomed him. So it seems a little bit contradictory. Like, wait, I thought, I thought there was uh, no honor for the prophet in his own country, but uh, it says that the Galileans welcomed him. And then, that's one. The second thing that is somewhat perplexing is when this man comes to him, and again, let's uh, pick up reading. It says, and there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. Uh, when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. So the second perplexing thing is Jesus sort of rebukes the, not just the man, but it's obvious that there are more people there. He rebukes them for their faith that is merely a faith for what they can get out of it. They want to see a sign. They want to see a wonder. And, and Jesus, he, he rebukes that. But then he does exactly what the man asked. He healed the man's son. So what is this all about? So a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. But then Jesus goes to that place. He rebukes the people for their lack of faith, saying that they wouldn't believe unless they saw signs and wonders, and he performs signs and wonders. I think, I think there's something happening here, and this is what I believe it is. Number one is that where and when God works is not determined by majority consensus. So because the general attitude in Galilee was one of unbelief toward Jesus, the assumption would be, well, he wouldn't go there because he already said a, a prophet is without honor, uh, is not without honor except in his own country. So why go there? Well, because there were some that would believe. And Jesus went to those who would believe, even though the general consensus was negative, even though most people were resistant, that didn't prevent Jesus from working. And I bring this up because I think it's important for us to recognize that even though we might look at certain places or look at certain people groups or something like that, and we might see an opposition or a hostility uh, there maybe in a culture toward the gospel and then assume that God wouldn't do a work there because of that, we could very well be wrong. Because God works not by majority consensus, but he works where any heart is open. And, and I think of Paul the Apostle and 
we, we saw the, the Bema seat there, Corinth. You know, Corinth was one of those places, if you would have, uh, if Paul would have told you in advance, hey, I'm going to go to Corinth because I just feel like the Lord is leading and, and God wants to do a work there. You know, anybody who knew Corinth in the day would have said, oh, no, Paul, there's no way. There, that, there's no way God's going to work in Corinth. I mean, that place is just, it's so far gone. It, it's just beyond repair. That's what the consensus would have been. Just like certain places today or certain groups of people today. Oh, God, God's, God's not going to work. Don't expect God to work there. But what happened with Corinth? The Lord, when, when Paul is about to go there, um, on his way there, he experiences some pretty intense opposition in Thessalonica and then in uh, Berea and, and Philippi before that. But, but then he comes to Corinth and he's, he's fearful. And Jesus appears to him one night and he says this. He says, Paul, don't be afraid. Nobody is going to attack, attack you in the city. And then he says this. He says, I have many people in this city. Don't be afraid, Paul. Stay here. Preach the gospel. I have many people in this city. Who would have thought that there were many people that had yet to meet Jesus, but would meet him in the city of Corinth? It just didn't seem like it. It seemed like that place was in um, stiff opposition to the God of heaven and earth, to the biblical God. But God knew that there were hearts there. And so I think that that is what's happening here. Even though the general consensus in Galilee is they're not interested, but yet some welcomed him and Jesus went for them. And then secondly, when we see how there's this rebuke that Jesus gives because of their wrong-headed thinking about faith, but yet he nevertheless does what the man asked him. And I think what we learn from this is that Jesus meets and helps people where they are, even when their spiritual state is not what it should be. Do you know that that's true? Jesus meets and helps people where they are, even when they aren't where they should be. Sometimes we get in our minds that, well, God's never going to help that person because we know certain things about them. Or we might even say, I, I don't think God will help me because, you know, these parts of my life are really not what they ought to be. Well, this isn't to encourage you to remain in a state where your life isn't where it should be, but it's to encourage you to know that even then, God still will work. He meets us where we're at. He doesn't put the prerequisite on us. Well, um, you know, you cry out to God, hey, I'll help you when you get your, your act together. He doesn't do that. He meets us where we are. I think of that wonderful story that's told in one of the other gospels or two, where the man comes to Jesus and his, his son is demonized and he's wanting to see his son delivered. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, if you can help, 
Please deliver my son. And Jesus says, if you can believe, all things are possible to those who believe. And the man says this. The man says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. He acknowledges that his faith is not what it should be. But it doesn't stop Jesus from helping him. And so I want you to know this today. That the Lord will meet you where you're at. He'll meet you right where you're at. And if you're at a place of weak faith, he's not going to pass you by because of your weakness of faith. He'll meet you where you're at. But then through that, he wants to strengthen your faith. And so these are two of the things that I think we can take away from what we read here in these, these somewhat perplexing verses. Now, moving on from that, let's look at the sign. Because we're told here that this is the second sign that Jesus performed. This is the second sign. What is the sign? Well, remember, a sign is, is pointing to something else. What is this pointing to? What did Jesus do here? He did not simply heal this man's son because he'd done that kind of thing already. And that kind of thing was fairly common. And no one else, I mean, although it was obviously a miracle and although it would have been one of the things that would have pointed to, to Jesus as, as the Messiah, yet this one sign specifically, John sees as special. Why is it special? Well, it's special because of this, that Jesus did not do what the man asked him to do in one sense. Because what did the man say? He said, come down to my, where my son is. Now, Jesus is in Cana of Galilee. This man comes to Cana. His son is in Capernaum. Come down to where my son is. So the man evidently is thinking Jesus needs to go and he needs to lay hands on my son. He needs to say a prayer over my son. He, he, he needs to be there present to do something. But you see, Jesus did not need to be present. Jesus simply spoke a word. And so we see here, the man said, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus says, go, your son will live. So the sign is that he spoke and the man's son was healed the very moment Jesus said it was so. And what John wants us to understand is that Jesus is doing here something that no one but God can do. That's what, he's, that's what he wants us to see. You see, as you follow the life of Jesus through the Gospels, it just becomes clear that this Jesus is not a mere man. That this Jesus is, is not even a superman. This Jesus is the God-man. He's God. He does things only God can do. Now, if the Jewish person understood anything about God, it was that his word was all-powerful. The Jews understood that. They, of course, had the scriptures. 
And those scriptures stated that over and over and over again. Eight times in the creation account of Genesis chapter one, it says, and God said, and it was so. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let the light and the darkness be separated, and it was separated. God said, let the waters and the land be separated from one another. God, in the beginning, created the heaven and the earth. So the Jews would understand that God alone had the power to speak things into existence. That was what they were taught in their scripture. Psalm 148, a psalm that they would have sung as they gathered. Psalm 148, it's, um, it's, it's a call out to all of creation. Sun, moon, stars, seas, sea creatures, animals, just all of the different things that God has created and the call is, let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. He commanded and they were created. God spoke everything into existence. Um, the, the Hebrew word bara, in, so Genesis chapter one, verse one, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The, the Hebrew word for created is bara. And it means to create from nothing. See, God creates from nothing. If you go back and you read some of the ancient cosmologies, uh, the stories the Babylonians told and the different uh, ancient people groups told about how the world came to being, it was all based on the battle of the gods and all these crazy mythological ideas and so forth. Um, the Bible itself is not even remotely like that. It's a straightforward account. God spoke heaven and earth into existence. Psalm 107 says this. He sent his word and healed them. And that is exactly what is happening here. Jesus is just speaking a word. Jesus is in Cana, which is about 20 miles sort of west of Capernaum, and there in Capernaum, as Jesus says that word, the boy is immediately healed. And when the man ends up heading home, his servants come to meet him, and they say, it's okay, it's good, your, your son's fine. And he said, when did he get better? And they told him the time, and he realized it was the exact moment that Jesus said, your son will live. So again, this is the sign. The sign is God has visited his people. He's visited his people. God is, God is among us. Remember the prophecy that says the virgin will bring forth the son and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's a prophecy about Jesus. Some people say, well, how come we call him Jesus and not Emmanuel? Emmanuel will be what he's called in the future when he comes back and reigns. But the point is, 
the sign is telling us that God is with us. And so this man, it says now that he and his household believed. So up until this point, his faith was like the faith of so many. It was not a deep faith in Jesus for who he was, but it was more a faith in him for what he might do for me. But now that Jesus heals and now he recognizes that he is in uh, the presence of someone who is not a mere man, but is, is none other than the God of Israel. He and his household believe. So they come to a real faith and become followers of Jesus at this point. Now, this, this word that Jesus spoke is, I want to tell you about this Greek word. The, the word logos, we all know that word, right? Logos means word. And in John chapter one, in the beginning was the word, that's the Greek word logos. But there's another word, there's a couple of other words, but one other word that we translate into English as word is the Greek word rhema. And somebody asked me, how do you spell that? R-H-E-M-A. And rhema is, is a different way of understanding word. And it's, it's a word that is more specific. Or you might understand it as it is a word to you. And this is what Jesus gives to this man. He gives him a word that is right for him and his immediate situation. And, and that's, that's what I, I want you to understand. That's what rhema is. It is a word to you that is um, of immediate relevance. God, it's, it's one of those times where you just, suddenly you just feel like, well, I think God's speaking to me here. It's a word that is for you and for the specific thing. Now, this man, notice what it says about him. It says that Jesus said, go, your son will live. And it says the man took Jesus at his word and departed. And the context seems to indicate that the man did not rush back to Capernaum, which you would have expected, but it seems like he took his time. Because when he meets those who are coming from Capernaum and says, when did my son get better? They say, yesterday. So what that shows us is this man delayed or slowed down his um, return home. Now, why would he do that? He would only do that if he had absolute confidence that what Jesus said was true. And that's apparently what he had because he took Jesus at his word. 
and he, and he departed. And when God gives us that, that rhema word, that is a word that he wants you to take it. He wants you to, to receive it, to embrace it, to say, yes, God, I believe that that is your word to me. And throughout our lives at various times and sometimes at, at critical times like we're dealing with here, this is a crisis, right, in this man's life. But sometimes in our lives, God will give us these kinds of words and he wants us to receive it. He wants us to lay hold of it and to just say, I'm, I'm going to take you at your word, Lord. And sometimes that can happen as, as you're maybe going through something that's challenging, difficult, and you're, maybe you're reading through your Bible, and then all of a sudden there's something that just seems to be, it seems to be leaping off the page. And it's something that is it's dealing with, in some way or another, exactly what you're going through. Or sometimes it could be that you're listening to somebody teach the Bible or preach a sermon. And there's, there's that word that begins to come and you think, oh my, this, this sounds like me. This sounds like this, this is exactly what I'm going through. That is a, a rhema word that is coming to you. Sometimes a, a friend, a person, a brother or sister might come and just say something. They might not even say, hey, the Lord told me to tell you this. They might just say something and the Lord brings it to you. There's a sense where it resonates in you. You just know that oh, this is different. You know, I've had many times in my life where I would say, the Lord spoke to me. Now, sometimes I, people can get carried away with that sometimes and they can go overboard and think the Lord's speaking to them about what to have for breakfast and where to go out to dinner and things like that. And that can, that can be kind of extreme. But all of us should expect that God is going to speak to us personal words. He's going to give us words that will comfort us, words that will encourage us, words that will challenge us, words that will direct us. He's going to do that. And guess what? <clears throat> the more we subject ourselves to God's word, the more frequently we're going to have those moments. You know, I was talking to a friend the other day and the friend was telling me that where they are and where they minister in the culture that they're in, the Christian community, that reading the Bible isn't really anything that they're all that serious about doing. And this friend actually said, you know, I, I talk to people all the time who just don't see the value or have a value um, when it comes to really faithfully reading the word. She said that she would talk to people and they will sometimes say, um, because you know she's a person who grew up in and has a real commitment to 
personally being in the word. And she says she'll have conversations with people and their reading is, is like once a month. They'll read a few passages once a month and then they'll go on. And, and a lot of times their lives are a mess and they wonder what's going on. You know, the Bible says men and women cannot live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God wants to speak to us. And he speaks to us through his word. And the more we open this book and the more we take the time to read it, the more likely we are going to be hearing from God and hearing those things <coughs> that we really do need to hear. And so God has a word for you. What has God said to you? Well, I don't know what he said to you, but whatever it is, take him at his word and go forward. God has spoken to me, and I know what he's spoken to me. And, and I want to do that. I want to take him at his word, and, and I want to move forward. Now, when God speaks to us, the devil, who's real, he will want to cast doubt upon the validity of that. He doesn't want you hearing from God and responding to God when he speaks. He doesn't want that to happen because that's gonna, that's gonna be a problem for, for what his agenda is. So he wants to keep us from hearing or sometimes even um, believing that God has spoken to us. And so sometimes God will speak to us and Shortly thereafter, in our minds, we start to question, oh, was that really God? I don't know, would God speak? Maybe, maybe I just imagined, maybe God didn't speak that to me. Oh, it, it, that, that sounds too good to be true. I just want God to say that to me. So that's why I'm thinking it is, but it's, it's probably really not him. Take Jesus at his word. Sometimes people, well-meaning people, well-intended, Christian people, God's speaking to you. And maybe you share that with somebody. You know, I think the Lord has spoken this way. Oh, no, no, God wouldn't say that. No, no, that's just your imagination. Because, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to get weird. You don't want to do, and so, you know, they're well-intended. They're, they're kind of looking out for you. They don't want you to, be weird or go crazy or do something that's like that's that's that would be just too too wild and so they'll come along with that good advice to just take it easy don't get too carried away with this god speaking to you stuff and you know we have to watch out for that. We have to be aware that that does happen. People will do that. 
And sometimes it can even be people who you respect and love and look up to. You know, God might speak something to you sometime that maybe your spiritual mentor disagrees with. And you're in a quandary because you're like, well, gosh, they're like my spiritual mentor. How could God speak something to me and they don't bear witness with it? Well, guess what? It does happen. It does happen. We, we have a personal relationship with God. And he's going to speak to us. Years ago, and this is no put down on the person that I'm about to mention here, but it's just a reality because that person was a human like all of us. <laughs> Pastor Chuck, when I went to him and said, I feel like the Lord is calling me and my family to leave and to move to England and to do ministry there. He did not believe that God was calling me to do that. And he did his darndest to try to persuade me that I was not hearing from God. And I was in a quandary. He was my spiritual mentor. He was the one who brought me up in the faith. Not to mention he was my father-in-law. And I'll never forget the morning I, I drove to his house. I lived down in San Diego. I drove up. I said, I need to meet with you. I need to talk to you about something. I drove up here to Newport Beach. And I sat down with him and I told him what I believed the Lord was speaking to me. And, you know, he offered about three or four different alternative plans that he thought would be better. And, and at the end, I just said, well, you know, look, I, I just, this is what, this is my conviction. I feel like I have to do this and so on. So came time to leave. He was very downcast. And I said, I'm sorry I ruined your day. And he said, you didn't ruin my day. You ruined my life. <laughs> that's, that's even more serious right there. So I got in my car and I drove home. And what do you think I was thinking about all the way down? Like, I, I just ruined Pastor Chuck's life. Surely this could not be, I, he must be right. I must be wrong because you know, he's not bearing witness. He's my mentor. He's my spiritual father, but he's, he's not bearing witness. And I'll never forget, right as I was pulling up at my house and just still in my mind wrestling with this and, and saying, Lord, this, I, I guess I got it wrong. I guess I read it wrong, Chuck. You know, he doesn't bear witness. And the Lord just spoke to me and said, Brian, are you serving Chuck or are you serving me? And I said, well, well Lord, I, I, I want to be serving you. He said, okay, then just do what I said. And so, and again, I'm not saying that, you know, if, if that tells you anything, it just tells you that Pastor Chuck was a human being, 
just like all the rest of us. And he had strong feelings. And um, as a matter of fact, he said, Brian, you know what? Here's the plan. You go and you just leave Cheryl and the kids here. <laughs> and that'll be cool. I mean, you can come and go as often as you want and that'll just be fine. He basically didn't want his daughter and his grandkids to leave. He didn't care that much whether I went or not. So... <laughs> But I had been given a word from the Lord. And that was what enabled me to say, I got to do what God's calling me to do. So God will speak to you. Maybe God has spoken to you. Stand on it. Take Jesus at his word. And I'm going to close with this quick story from the book of Acts. And I love this passage because it really kind of just sums it all up. Um, Paul is, he goes to Jerusalem and he's, um, you know, he, he has this opportunity. Finally, he's brought before this whole group of Jewish people. You know, Paul's whole passion is he wants to see his own people saved. He wants, he wants, Israel to come to faith. And so he is, has this moment where he's preaching and all of these Jews that want to kill him, they're finally listening to him intently. And he's telling them, look, I understand you. I used to be just like you. I tried, I, I hunted down people who believed in Jesus. I had letters from the high priest and you know, they're listening and he's speaking in Hebrew and they're all connecting. And then he goes on and he says, and, and you know, at this certain point, Jesus spoke to me, he said, get out of here. I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. And when he said that, they just flipped out. He completely lost his audience at that moment. And they had to bring him under, um, you know, they, they had to actually deliver him from the mob. They had to bring him under protective uh, security. And so they, they take him in, and, and that night, Paul is so depressed. He's so discouraged because he feels like he failed his opportunity to present the Messiah to the, the Jewish leadership there at the temple in Jerusalem, and he blew it. And Jesus spoke to him and said, Paul, you didn't blow it. He said, and just as you testified for me here in Jerusalem, you're going to testify for me in Rome as well. So fast forward, a few years down the road, Paul is kept in prison. He has, at a certain point, he finally appeals to Caesar. So he's going to be sent to Caesar and so he boards a ship and he's going to make his way to Rome. And as he's on his way, the ship is in the midst of a storm. The ship is actually going to sink. But God has encouraged Paul. And so he stands up. He's now basically taken over the ship, the captain. Nobody else knows what to do because it's this horrendous storm. And Paul says, listen, we're, it's going to be okay. We're all going to survive. Nobody's going to die. Nobody's going to drown. The ship's going to sink, but we're going to make it safe to land. And then he said this. He said, because this night, 
an angel of the God that I serve appeared to me and said, Paul, you must testify for me in Rome. Paul's going back to that word that he heard there in Jerusalem. You're going to testify for me in Rome. God's going to send me to Rome. We're going to be okay. And then he said these words, and this is what I'm closing with. He said, and I believe that it shall be just as I was told. That's it. I believe it shall be just as I was told. God speaks and he will speak to you and he probably has spoken to you and you could give a testimony about how he's spoken to you, but don't stop listening and don't stop expecting because he has a word for you. He has a word for me. And guess what? He has a word for us too. And when I say us, I mean his people, the church. God's not finished working in this world. And I know for some Christians, it's like, oh, this is it. It's over. It's the end. Pack your bag. The rapture's happening tomorrow. You know, I know there is that mentality. Um, hey, the culture's too far gone. Jesus, he's not going to work here any longer. That's not what God's speaking to me. That's not what God's saying to many in the church. There's a word of hope. God is at work. He's doing things. And let's believe that. And let's do what this guy did. Let's take Jesus at his word and let's be about the business of the kingdom until the Lord returns. And you know, as we close today... As, as, as we close today, as we do every Sunday, we're going to close with a, a time of remembering Jesus, what he's done for us through the bread and the cup, as we take it together. And maybe for you today, this is a moment where you are going to recommit yourself to, to believing that word that God has spoken to you. And I want you to do that as you take the bread and the cup. Maybe there's, maybe something God has said, and maybe you've just lost hope. Maybe you've lost confidence. Maybe you're just saying, I don't know. I, that's probably never was God. But man, at the time, it just seemed like, oh, that was the Lord. Just lay hold of that again. And let this bread and this cup, let, let it remind you of the love and the faithfulness of God. The body that was broken, the blood that was shed. And if you don't know Jesus today, oh, he's got plans for your life and he wants to work in your life and he wants to speak to you and guide you. But it all starts with coming to him, receiving the forgiveness of sins. And that's what the bread and the cup, they symbolize his body that was broken, his blood that was shed. So our sins could be forgiven and we could be reconciled to God. And if you've never been reconciled to God, today is a day that you could do that. You could say, Lord, forgive my sins and come into my life and then come and partake of this bread and this cup. And so, Lord, we pray now that as we close our service today, just looking to you, we pray that, Lord, just as this man received the sign that you spoke God spoke to him and he took you at your word. May 
we be those that do that very thing as well. In Jesus' name, amen.